If you listen to this podcast and follow what we do at Troutbitten, then you're a thoughtful angler, and you don't accept the status quo simply because that's how it's always been done. Squall of Fishing designs and creates fly fishing apparel with this same philosophy. Squalla was started by a group of lifelong fly anglers who spent their careers working for some of the biggest names in the outdoor industry, and they understood that essential fly fishing apparel like waders, jackets, sun gear, and insulation could simply be better. So now, Squalla makes gear for us, the like-minded few, serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. Check them out at squallafishing.com. Water is essential for life, but for Orvis, it's the blood of the brand. Orvis has been the leader in fly fishing since 1856. No other brand can match the explorative and innovative spirit they bring to the water today. Everything at Orvis is about inspiring and empowering adventure and wonder in nature. Rooted in the vitality of fly fishing, fueled by passion and curiosity for the outdoors, Orvis designs and develops products and experiences providing the knowledge and expertise to enable more meaningful moments and connections in nature. With over a century and a half of experience in the field and on the water, Orvis seeks to ignite that passion in others. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Yeah, Trout Bitten. Troutbitten. It's about trout. Wild trout. This is Troutbitten. This is the Troutbitten Podcast, episode 11. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Dominic Swantoski. I'm the owner of Troutbitten and the author of Troutbitten.com, where you can find almost everything that we talk about in these podcasts in great detail. With 750 articles and counting, the Troutbitten website is full of stories, commentary, and technical articles that dig deep into the how-tos of fly fishing for trout. So, we fish for the experience. We fish for the challenges and for the chance to improve our skills. We fish for the way the activity of fishing brings us together with family and friends. And we fish for the places that the chase of wild trout takes us. But none of us spends enough time on the water. For the trout-bitten type of angler, the draw to the river is ever-present, and we plan for the next trip as the previous one winds down. So we fish when we can. Instead of waiting for the best conditions, the diehard angler fishes because it's Sunday, or because it's Tuesday evening after work, or because it's Monday morning after dropping the kids off at school. Few of us have the luxury to pick and choose our times on the water. So every angler who wishes to fish quickly learns to deal with tough conditions. And that is today's topic. We're here to talk about fighting the elements, dealing with the weather. How can we effectively fish through rain, wind, cold weather, ice, snow, hard sun, and anything else that nature throws at us? There's always some natural element that we're battling out there. Usually it's more than one. And if we don't have a plan for dealing with these elements, we fail. Uh, Some anglers walk away when the going gets tough. But as we all know, sometimes the best fishing happens in those toughest conditions. So we fish hard. We persevere. We adapt and meet the challenges before us. And quite often, some of our most memorable days happen in these harsh or difficult conditions. So my friends are joining me today to share some tips, 
some ideas about how to get through the elements and get to the end of the day, not just with trout in the net, but with some lasting memories and a sense of satisfaction. But before we get to our main discussion, let me introduce my friends with our Q&A round. Here is my friend, Austin Dando. Hi, buddy. Hey, how we doing? Good. Austin, what are the most basic tools you need to get into fly tying? The basic tools, the most basic tools. Sure. Um, So to get into fly tying, you really don't need a whole lot. Heck, I don't have a whole lot now. Right. Um, All you need is um, a half-decent vice. It doesn't have to be um, top of the line. All it needs to do is hold your hook in place. Sure. So get a a decent vice, get a sharp pair of scissors. Mm. You can start with one bobbin. That's what holds your thread. Yep. Um, You can get a whip finisher, though it's not necessary, but I found it easy um, when I was first learning to use a whip finisher rather than trying to do it with my fingers. Yeah. Those couple of things um, are really the, the basis of what you need. From there, you can decide what your fly tying style is. And uh, based on that, you may uh, get more specialty tools, but that's a good baseline. I'm with you. That's what I was thinking too. Vice, bobbin, scissors. So honestly, I tied probably five years without whip finishing anything ever. I just, yeah. <laughs> I'd throw like five half hitches and that was good. There you go. You know? <laughs> yep. yep. When I started out tying eggs for steelhead mm-hmm. because- yeah. They were easy. Just put some yarn on a hook. Well, so let me ask anybody this. Uh, Do you guys recommend a fly tying kit or no kit and just get the materials or whatever that you need? I think a kit bottlenecks you, meaning like it's going to force you to tie what's in the kit, buy the vise, buy the bobbin. I think most times you can get that under $20 now if you look around. Yeah, just about. Definitely under 50 Yeah, and then just start with something simple like midge flies that are just thread on a hook and you're good to go. Yep. <laughs> Except that those are tiny. <laughs> that's, that's hard to tie tiny. You're time in 14. Okay. <laughs> 14 midges. Size work. 14 midges. That's Bill's pseudo recommendation. Pheasant's a perfect beginner fly. A pseudo pheasant. <laughs> Austin's <laughs> favorite pheasant tail. Nah, I'm not a kit guy either. I, I don't. I never recommend kits to people. I say buy, buy what you need for that first fly, whether it's a woolly bugger or a waltz worm. Yeah, the kits. That's a good way to put it, Bill. Is like sort of bottleneck you. Yeah, the rest will come in time. So let me introduce Bill Dell. Uh, Bill, William. Dominique. <laughs> hey, yes or no? Does rod balance matter? Just give me a yes or no. <laughs> He's saying no. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I, I'll say All yes. Right. Okay. Why does it matter then? And where should that balance point be really? Tell me that. Where should the balance point be? So to me, if you hold the rod, and I guess the official way is hold your rod. Hold your, There's an official your way? Your finger. There's an official way. Official. <laughs> this is the official way I All do right. it. I hold my pointer finger <laughs> the official <laughs> way I do it. <laughs> hold my uh, pointer finger at the end of the cork. That's my official way. <laughs> and Doing see if the uh, rod kind of balances one way or the other. So I looked into this last year a little <laughs> yeah. bit because I had some problems with my elbow and had tendonitis in it. And I had fished for a decade without caring about rod balance. I went back and was like, well, let me let me balance my rods so that I feel like they're better balanced and they're not, you know, completely out of whack one way or yeah. another. And I do feel like it helps a little bit with the swing weight and the balance. Is it a lot? I don't know, but I don't have as much tendonitis this year. Yeah. And I fish just as much, so maybe it does. Mm. So I like my balance point right there at what I call the trigger finger. And your official way is for your 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 pointer finger to be pointed forward and, and on top 
And actually, that's the way I do it too. That's the way a lot of people do it. But, but lots of people put the thumb on top. Maybe more people that I see put the thumb on top. Either way it works. But if the thumb on top, then my trigger finger becomes my, well, my, my pointer finger. By, by trigger finger, I mean where the line goes through. And for me, I want that balance point right there. And when I have it right there, I feel like I'm more accurate. I really do. I feel like the rod becomes, well, almost effortless to, to hold. And then I'm not squeezing it just to hold it while I'm casting it. I'm only squeezing it sort of at the very end of that forward cast. And that gives me a little bit of extra power, especially when I'm thinking about a tuck cast or I'm trying to really stop it hard and do different things even with a dry fly. Um, yeah, that's where I like the balance point. Anybody else? I personally don't think it matters very much. I don't. I just don't think I've ever noticed it in any way. You probably have Maybe. really balanced rods, though. I bet you do. Rods and reels. Maybe, Maybe so. You might just Maybe locked so. into it. Honestly, it's not that hard to get. These yeah. days, most even long yeah. rods are light enough. You know, you get the right size reel, it's pretty close. Yeah, that's the thing. Is they're all every rod now is pretty light for what right. we're doing. If you're fishing a rod that that fits the style of fishing that we're doing, and and almost every reel is heavy enough to to balance out a long rod. If it's not like a little three weight reel or yeah. something like that. I had a nine foot six weight for a streamer rod one time and it was heavy. It was kind of a cheaper rod and it was heavy. And oh, I was kind of obsessed with uh balancing all my rods and reels at the time. I took the reel, which was the right size, but it was light because it was designed to be light. And anyway, I put lead core trolling line on there and did other things. Mm. I put golfers tape. The golfers mm. tape. Right. There's yeah. all kinds of ways, right? So you guys have done this too then. And it, the other it, thing go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, the other thing we have to remember is that when you balance those rods, yeah. if you fish a fly line, well, you better put the fly line out the guide yes. so you know what it's actually doing. But we're often mm-hmm. not doing that. Mm-hmm. So most of the weight starts and ends in the reel for us, which mm-hmm. automatically helps kind of balance the rod towards us if we have a heavy rod tip or something like that. Right, because you're saying we're not doing that. Because we're often fishing mono, which right. is, you know, when you have that out the guides, it's, it's much less, uh, much mm-hmm. less weight. Sure is. So, yeah. How are you going to be fishing? And that's how you should balance it for sure. And just something as simple as gripping the rod in the same place every time. I know we talked mm. about that there to begin with, but I think I'll, I have even noticed myself, uh, like there are times where I notice casting seeming more, I don't know. I just can feel the difference in balance. And and sure enough, oftentimes I've inched my hand up till my, mm. my pointer fingers actually like up the rod. Yeah. And my, and my hand's barely on the cork anymore. I don't know why. I just tend to ride yeah. up over time if I'm not paying attention to sure. it. And, and holding it mm. the same way would make you more accurate, Absolutely. even if only slightly. It matters, yeah. Do you guys all cast with your pointer finger on the back side of the rod when you're casting, or do you cast without your pointer finger? So cast with your finger on the spine of or the like rod. That. Yeah, or, there you go. Or cast with your thumb on the top, or on, the, on the spine my of the rod. My finger's on the spine of the rod. Same. I'm a thumb guy. I'm a thumb guy too. Squeeze. I'm a, I'm a neither. I just I got my squeeze, hand wrapped around. Right. Are you serious? And squeeze. That's oh, why I hate seeing that. Yeah, I'm the squeeze. Mm. It's squeeze. the squeeze. Oh man, I really do. I hate seeing that. I don't like. I hate the pointer finger. I'm like, yeah, but you don't have the thumb up there either. Yeah. No, it's just the it's it's all, the rods like resting. Oh, no wonder the, you don't catch many fish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm more accurate than you, so. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I guide and I see people doing that, I really try to get them to either put the finger or the thumb up top. I feel like it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me introduce Let me introduce my friend, Dr. Trevor Smith. Hey, Trevor. Hey, good evening. Good evening. Why are so many fly anglers also guitar players? Hey, that's a good question. I think 
it goes beyond just guitar playing in my mind. I think there's a certain, there are crossover skills in fishing. And I think having been an athlete or being a musician um, and guitar in particular has some value when it comes to learning how to fly fish. And I think the delicacy of handling line through a trigger finger and casting certainly can be traced back to better muscle memory or better proprioception and just feeling in your fingertips. So proprioception is just the awareness of where your fingers are in space or where anything is in space in your body. Um, You see like basketball players wear a sleeve on their arm. That's to give them better proprioception over their arm, better awareness of where it is in space, theoretically leading to better accuracy on shot. Sounds like we need to be wearing sleeves for fly fishing. That's next. (laughs) First, there was the buff. Here comes the sleeve. First, the buff. There you go. Dumb wore the the sweatband. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The sweatband. Oh, yeah. Always know where your head is. (laughs) Um, But a good guitar player you know, who's using their fingers a lot for guitar playing, I think is going to be a better handler of their line, probably have better dexterity. But I also think there's a rhythm component to it. You know, we've talked maybe about that as well, but in music, early on in music theory, you learn how to keep rhythm or keep time. And there's such a cadence to the cast in fly fishing, whether that's always acknowledged or not. And so I think that helps a lot as well. That's neat. So I think probably you could continue to trace other benefits across. I thought they were just all hippies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They don't have jobs. They have more time to spend. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, that's how do you feel about that, that's Tom? Right. They don't have jobs. That's right. They don't have don't jobs. Have jobs. <laughs> they just, yeah, they just play with their guitar. I think, all day. I think they just have a. I think they just have a passion for beautiful things that take a lot of work to Listen get good to at. This. I love it. See that? So four of us play guitar, and then Bill doesn't. Oh, uh, I have no yeah. musical skills, whatever. <laughs> but I can outfish any of you. <laughs> Even <laughs> yeah. How do we explain your yeah. talent, Bill? I don't know. Freak of nature. Freak of Finger nature. on top, Bill. Practice it. Here's my friend, Josh Darling. Hey, Josh, do you most enjoy fishing alone or with a friend? Depends on what friend. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Very honest. I, I mean, I, I love them both. Uh, in general, more of my time on the water is spent alone, yeah. and, and I love it that way. But I, I really do enjoy sharing the water with good friends. Yeah. It's not, it's not one over the other, really. It's just usually I'm alone, and I love that. So if you're with one of your good friends that you enjoy fishing with, um, what's your favorite way to do it? Let's say you're on a stream that's 50 feet wide, and it's, and it's kind of woodsy, because that, that matters. Sometimes mm-hmm. you can fish right beside people. Yeah, in that situation, what's your favorite way to do it with a friend? Usually we'll hike first, so get to, get to hard-to-access water and then split up a ways. Yeah. And then, like, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit on the mm-hmm. podcast, how— Trevor and I, when we started night fishing, we began carrying radios. And that's a fun way of doing it, honestly, because yeah. you get to check yeah. in every once it in a while. Neat. And so you don't sure. have to see each other and be like, hey, what's what's working? How are you mm-hmm. doing? Yeah. Split up a ways so that you're not, you know, getting in each other's face. And, and if it feels necessary, leapfrog every once in a while if it feels like one person's consistently getting the good stuff. Like when you're fishing with Bill, front ends you all the time. Yeah, I always get the yeah. good stuff. Bill points out <laughs> the good stuff, but if you're not quick enough to jump on it... <laughs> I'm He's like, right hey, that's a there. good spot. Yeah. Hey, that's a good spot. You know, after the third time, I'm like, all right, I'm going to take the good spot. <laughs> Austin, you seem like one of those guys who would enjoy just standing there watching your friend fish and taking turns. We've never done that together, but do you do that? <laughs> that is fun. <laughs> um, right? Yeah. Sometimes I, uh, yeah, when I'm fishing with somebody else, I can get kind of um, sidetracked or yeah. distracted in yeah. a good way. Yeah, I know. And just watch my friend fish and sit on the bank a while mm-hmm. and get up and walk away it's a beautiful thing 
and then they'll come and sit by me and it's real nice. <laughs> okay, guys, let's take a short break and we'll come right back uh, talking about how to fight the elements. Whether you're on the water or at the fly tying bench, Avid Max has you covered. AvidMax.com offers an impressive scope of premium brands and products to help you achieve your ultimate goal, success on the water. The catalog of over 19,000 products includes everything a fly angler or a fly tire desires. With fast shipping and expert knowledge, you get the gear you need when you need it. Listeners of the Trout Pitten Podcast receive a discount when shopping at AvidMax.com with the coupon code TROUTPITTEN10. No spaces. Enter the code at checkout to get 10% off your first order. From high mountain streams to the salt flats, Avid Max has the gear and expertise to elevate your game. Fulling Mill is the world's leading producer of flies, fly boxes, hooks, beads, and tippet. Known for their barbless hooks, they have many of your favorite trout patterns tied barbless. Not only that, they feature patterns from anglers like George Daniel, Pat Weiss, Josh Miller, Joe Goodspeed, and many others from around the world. Every pattern is backed by the 200% fulling mill guarantee. If a fly isn't up to the highest standards that you expect, they will replace it with two that are. Stock up at FullingMill.com or ask for their flies at your local dealer. All right, guys, let's talk about fishing the elements out there, dealing with the weather. Let's consider these. Rain, wind, cold weather, ice and snow, heat, and then bright sun. Uh, notably, we're not including high water, low water, clear, or muddy water here. Those are also tough conditions to deal with. But this discussion is really for those natural elements that are kind of outside the river itself. We're talking about weather, really. And of course, each of these elements can dramatically affect the fishing, the river, and how we might attempt to successfully catch trout. Once again, here are the elements. Rain, wind, cold weather, and ice and snow kind of go together. Heat and then bright sun. Let's start with this. What's the hardest element to overcome out there? Any opinions? Wind. My least favorite wind. is heat. No. Wind. I think wind is the hardest. Yeah, I'm going out there and <laughs> saying wind. Everybody's wrong with you people. <laughs> Wind's the right answer. Wind. Okay, no. I, I agree yeah. with wind also. Uh, sometimes. sometimes. Wind gets in my head more than any other, uh, other yeah. elements because, and it screws my accuracy up, it screws my casts up, it destroys my confidence. Mm. I can, you can even put, I can even put a bobber on and, and be drifting with a bobber and do all, you know, heavy anchor fly. I can do everything I can possibly think yeah. of to counteract the wind. And yet it still plays into my mental confidence about my fishing in such a way that I, I'd rather pack up. Trevor, I agree with you. My least favorite is wind too. Really? Um, but for a slightly mm -hmm. different reason is that it just limits the sure. way that I get to fish that day mm. more than any other yeah. condition does for me. Yeah. So often I can overcome sure. Um, adversities and other weather conditions, but wind, the tricks out of the bag is, is way less in my, in my game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you and I are probably thinking about wind speeds, probably over 15 miles an hour, exactly. so, you know, like yeah. windy, windy, windy. Yeah, I, think I don't care about for any wind. of these. I think we're thinking about the extremes, yeah, the extremes of, of those right. conditions. For me, 11 and up, that's my number. 11 miles per hour. Is uh, I can, hey, it's guys, dicey. guys, I can deal with 14 miles an hour. I just, you know, uh. <laughs> I can fish a headbanger at 20 miles. There you go. Mm. Well, so uh, this is interesting. I, I wouldn't have, well, yeah. I wouldn't have necessarily named, <laughs> I wouldn't have necessarily named wind as, as the most difficult, but this is cool. I like what you're saying there, Austin. It limits your bag of tricks, right? Mm -hmm. mm, I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, I agree with that. And it almost blinds you, I think. Mm. You know, like you can no longer, at that 
speed of wind, you can no longer rely upon any vision through the water. You can, you have a poorer view of the depth of the water. You know, the surface of the water is being disturbed so much in these really windy conditions that I just feel like it limits you and even more than the, the fishing technique itself. So what do you do to combat the wind? Yeah. What are your... Let's say it's 15 mile an hour. Um, what's your technique? You, you're, what you first said there a second ago about uh, throwing a headbanger. I think we all realize one of the best things you can do is overweight the system. I mean, yeah. if you're going to yep. decide, okay, I'm not going to fish dries, and you can. We could talk about that in a second. But let's say we're throwing uh, either streamers or nymphs under the water. If you throw more weight in the system, you can beat that wind. I feel like almost any wind, you can beat it with the weight. I agree. And then usually a suspension technique. Along with that, if I'm going to nymph. For nymphing. Our buddy Grobe mm-hmm. used to talk about when it was really windy, but he still wanted a tight line nymph. Yeah. And that wind is blowing on his cider real hard. He'd yeah. put like a, a woolly bugger on the point fly. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then let that wind uh, dance his woolly bugger around on the bottom, add some mm-hmm. animation to it. I know. Still be in contact enough to detect a striker and eat. And that was one way that he used to do it that I always thought was pretty interesting. I know. I remember him uh, explaining that to me. I thought he put it on the yeah. tag fly. I don't remember. I mean, don't quote me on that. And if he doesn't do it anymore, but I remember he used to do something along those lines mm-hmm. where he took advantage of the wind to put it into his flies. Yes. We're talking about Matt Grobe, a uh, good friend of ours who now lives out in Montana. We need to get him on here sometime. Mm-hmm. He, he'd be, he'd be a be lot fun. of fun and he has fantastic <laughs> ideas and he catches a lot of big trout and he just fishes all the time. Fishes with his thumb too. Fish, he definitely fishes with his thumb on top. <laughs> no, but <laughs> No, but that idea of you know, using the wind to give your flies animation is pretty unique. I like that. Right. Yep. I like that too. Uh, when I have the wind behind me, I feel like I can deal with it better. When I have the wind, mm-hmm. you know, a headwind, yeah. uh, ooh, that's that's more difficult. I that's agree. especially true. We were talking about tight line nymphing a se- second ago. Um, yeah, when I'm in a contact system like that, uh, I feel like the wind behind me, I can kind of pull into the wind. Let's say I'm fishing upstream. I'm trying to get dead drifts. And I can kind of pull my cider, pull my rod tip and then my cider into the wind and sort of defeat the effect mm-hmm. of the wind. But when it's, uh, you know, blowing right at me, now it is creating drag because my cider becomes a sail. And yeah, it's pushing drag right into my system that there's almost no way to defeat it. You can counteract it, like I was saying, with extra weight. And then what Trevor said earlier, you can throw a uh, bobber or some kind of indicator on that tight line yeah. rig and have a hell of a good system. So with wind, I like to keep everything lower, yeah. meaning like I'm not, ho- I'm holding my rod tip as low as I physically possible to the water. So like I'm changing my angle where my angle is a flatter yeah. mm-hmm. and I'm almost like kind of like dragging the cider along the surface if I'm trying to sure. tight line. Then that's not like in an extreme condition when you're like you know, maybe 15 miles an hour and more. But if there's a little bit of a wind, you can usually combat that with a little bit of overweighting, but more with like your rod angle. If you're not holding your rod angle, you know, at shoulder length and you're holding that rod angle basically on the water at that point, you're not letting the wind affect it as much. I like to fish close too. You're right on. The less line you have by the water, the less... Uh, mass there is to get blown around for so sure you, you know keep that rod or keep that line inside your rod guides and um mm-hmm. you don't feel the effects as bad less sail yeah and you do have the cover of the wind on the surface too from the visibility of the trout standpoint that's an interesting sure. that point broken mm-hmm. water that's a very good point yeah so we've talked there a lot about nymphing uh one of my favorite things to do when it's real windy is throw streamers yeah 
I think a lot of times wind comes with clouds. And if I, you know, if the sun's not directly on top of the fish, I feel like I got a good chance with streamers. Oh, I don't know. The most of the streamer setups that I fish are heavy enough. I'm, I can beat that wind. Uh, and now I don't care if, you know, my line gets pushed around. That doesn't mm-hmm. matter. I'm trying to impart some kind of motion on that streamer anyway. Right. That's my, like, if it gets windy, that's my first go-to. But there's times, I feel like when it's a, when it, when I get those extreme wind conditions and like an extreme front yeah. or something's pushing in, they're not always uh, cooperative with streamer eats <clears throat> where you have to kind of slow it down and get it to them. But that's my first thing to go to. Yeah, I think, well, like you said, Austin, your bag of tricks becomes more limited and yet streamers become so... There's not much that I have to do to change my streamer game, I don't mm. think, for me to try to beat that wind. It doesn't feel like I have to do anything special or like I'm or like I'm really fighting very much. Like we said, that the adjustments that we need to make in a, in a tight line nymphing game. What about yeah. dry flies? You guys fish dries in the wind much? I've had a couple good days yeah. fishing ants in the wind. Mm. Um, if I can find... I usually try to find a little shelter from the wind, but I feel like a lot of times in the fall, the fish are looking up for terrestrials in the wind. And so I've had some good days around here fishing ants in the wind. Interesting. Oftentimes, interestingly, I'm thinking about this because of fall, because what the best day I ever had doing this, I was with Bill actually, and there were a lot of leaves falling into the water every time it gusted. Yeah. And every time it gusted and the leaves fell in the water, you just see rises all around the no leaves. No way. And I sort of figured that's pretty cool. So I don't know if they were ants or not, but I figured there was something coming off the trees. It was a big sycamore tree that was dropping a lot of leaves. And I figured something was coming, something insect wise was coming off those leaves as they hit the water. And so I just started casting ants every time those leaves started to hit the water. And it, it was a oh, lot of fun neat. to start picking off. Now, fish. Hey, not yeah. too long ago, we talked about whether the leaves falling in the river actually will spook the trout. I mean, I had, I had somebody mm. ask me that, or maybe we talked about it. And I said, no, I think they get used to it pretty quickly. And here, what you're saying is that yep. is a trigger in that case on they, that day. Yeah, they were keying in on it for sure. That's neat. So yep. when dad and I went out to Montana a couple of times, um, and Austin, you lived out there, so you can <laughs> testify to this, that there, it's windy mm. out there a lot, a lot more than, yeah. and you have the big, right, open. right, right, big open valleys. Um, and we were there in August, uh, both times for a couple of weeks at a time. And they would take, I mean, they were eating dry so much. I, I hardly nymphed. I hardly even threw streamers. It was just fun to just wherever we went, throwing dries. Loved it. And there were some really windy conditions. And I learned pretty quickly that my 5X was kind of just silly to try to fish. Try going to 4X. Nah. So so I went to 3X and sometimes even 2X with, well, 2X with uh, some of the bigger uh, humpies and the hoppers that I was using. But even I, I fished ants out there in some places. They were like size 12, size, size 14 ants. But I started fishing those on 3X. Again, you can throw dries in the wind. I just feel like you have to beef up the, the leader and the tippet. I think, I think that's a good point. I'll trim back the leader if I, if, I throw, if I throw dries and it's a truly windy day and I need more power. I'm not going to fish a 10-foot, 12-foot leader. I'm going to fish maybe an 8.5 to 9-foot leader to the, to the dry fly, yeah. so to speak. And that the fly line, I do think, gives you more mass and acceleration to oh, beat yeah. the wind. Where if if you're not gonna, if you're trying to throw a mono rig in the, you know, twenty mile an hour winds with a size fourteen no. caddis, you're gonna oh, lose I'd that never battle. Even try it. You know, right? Agreed. So my my kind of least favorite condition is heat. Maybe it's because I'm a larger individual. <laughs> um, 
have more mass, more insulation, so, more insulation. And so the heat just, I would rather fish at 32 degrees instead of 82 degrees. I I'll, I'll agree with that. I'd rather fish uh, cold yeah. than. Yeah, but those aren't the extremes, you know. Fair. Yeah. Fair point. Fair. The I'd rather fish at 92 or sorry, I'd rather fish at 10 degrees than 92. There you go. That's a much more bold statement. <laughs> so let's assume that we're saying, uh, we're talking about how the heat affects us and maybe affects our fishing, yes. but not necessarily the fish. Let's assume we're, we're fishing either a tailwater in the heat or we're fishing a spring creek that has enough cold flow. And yeah, those fish are fine because let's say it's 64 degrees still, you know, let's just put mm-hmm. that number on it. Um, so we're not talking about heat and how it necessarily even affects the trout's feeding patterns. None of these, none of these elements that we're talking about fighting, are we really talking necessarily about how it affects the fish? Yeah, we're going to touch on that. I think what we're talking about is how we can stay comfortable or effective at least, you know, on the water and stay, yeah, stay out there on the water, keep fishing and deal with those conditions and get, well, good presentations. How does the heat hurt us though? Uh, How does the heat hurt presentations? To me, it it just makes me more tired. It dehydrates me quicker. The way I combat it is usually wet waiting. Yes. You know, that or I'm dunking my hat, I'm dunking my arms, I'm dunking myself. Yeah. I'm finding a way to stay cool in the in that sixty four degree water. I'm trying to find the deepest run to stand in and cool myself yeah. off. I think that's really what we're saying is it's uh well, so many anglers do stop fishing when it gets uncomfortable out there. And I always used to just go ahead and fish right through the summer. Again, we're on these spring creeks and and the water's cold enough. I'd fish right through the summer, but I was uncomfortable and my vest would get very sweaty. And I didn't understand that if I would really wet wade the right way, I could be a lot more comfortable. So when I started wet wading for real, that really changed everything for me. You guys all wet wade? What do you mean Mm -hmm. by that? What what do you mean by wet wade the right way? Well, what I used to do... um, was I, I asked, believe it or not, I started by wearing jeans. No, I know oh boy. <laughs> it was no, <laughs> right? So, I, well, there's the wrong way. No, I, I was uh, late teens, early 20s. I so jorts or jeans, no jeans because hey, I do a lot of uh, I've always hiked through the brush, you know, I'm going to the next spot, there's always brush. So, I figured okay, I usually have waders on, but now I don't want to get all cut up and I'm gonna wear jeans, okay? So, that's why I wore it now. I wear, I don't know, it's like ripstop nylon pants that dry really, really quickly. You can be out of the water for eight or 10 minutes and your pants are dry. Yeah. And yet they're, they're pretty durable too. I never understood, like, I don't get wearing the leotard pants <laughs> or whatever, whatever you want to call them. No. I don't get the elf pants. I don't understand so, that. So I think, I think the reason that you wear the elf yeah. pants is to cut water. Mm. So if you're okay. in like a really fast river um, and you have like the – columbia pants that are like kind yeah. of loose fitting around Pretty your legs yeah. and so when you get in like a really fast current i know i've seen it in some of the western guys and i think those rivers are really fast and really steep mm. gradients and so that pants kind of flapping in the current may hinder your waiting ability as much I've actually never seen this. Are you talking about like people wearing tights yeah. in the river to wade in? Yeah, like spandex. Honestly, Bill, I think you have yeah. it. I think you okay. have it right there. That's and weird. seriously, I think that's a great point. Who does that? I haven't seen it. Oh, I've seen it a lot, honestly. And really? just pictures, just pictures. I've really? seen people wet, wet wade around here with that. Bill, do you wear tights? Do you wear leotard pants, elf pants? I do not. No one <laughs> wants to see me in tights. 
<laughs> so I wear the pants that you kind of talk about, or I wear shorts occasionally. I do wear pants the majority of the time just because of poison ivy around right. here. That's why I don't wear I don't wear shorts because I don't want to want my legs to get all cut up, and I don't want the poison ivy effect. I once saw a guy wet wading in January in jorts. What are jorts? In our local wow. creeks. What does that mean? Yep. Jean wow. shorts. Jean <laughs> shorts. <laughs> Shout out to the jorts. <laughs> that's that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Back uh, to the jeans. In January. I've seen something similar okay. before. Yeah. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> no, <laughs> Josh, you asked what, you know, what I was doing wrong. And first of all, I was wearing jeans. And second, I used to wear mm. my same wading boots and I would put a couple pair of big, thick wool socks in there so that I could take up the space, you know. Mm. And then finally, I spent 20 bucks back then on a pair of neoprene wading socks. Everybody sells them now. Yeah. When I did that, all of a sudden, I could wear my regular wading boots, which is what I want to do. I don't want to wear sandals because rocks get in. Sandals are not a good solution for most of them. No. And I don't want to change my wading boots. I know they got flats boots and real light boots for wet wading. Great. If you like those, cool. But I want my regular traction because I'm kind of nuts about traction. I want to know that I have that foot support. I don't want anything to change. So I wear the neoprene wading socks. And uh, I actually still wear a thin pair of wool socks inside the neoprene socks. So anyway, my feet feel very natural, what I'm used to. And when I started doing that is when I started feeling very comfortable with wet wading. And it really did change things for me. We were on a trip in Montana and it was like 90 four to a hundred degrees. I felt like every day and we had brought waiters with us and um, we went and bought like you were talking about the, the neoprene wading socks. And it was just an absolute game changer to wear those and fish and just so much more. They're like 30 bucks now. I mean, we spend a lot more money on other stuff. Yeah. This is why I don't include heat as one of my main detractors in terms of conditions, because I feel like if you're assuming that you're fishing safe water for the trout, you have cold water and if you apply the right clothing to it, your time in the water is not that uncomfortable. And I think, you know, a lot of the, even the fishing clothing that's sold today has some sun protection built into yeah. it. And then, it, you know, all you have to do is lather up the back of your neck. I, I think it's the walk in and out that bothers me Good the point. most in the heat, you know, because like, we hike a lot around here to get into fishing spots. And, and that's certainly uncomfortable, but I, I don't, I don't know if I would include that in a condition that deters me from ability to fish well it's it's my least comfortable yeah i guess i would say because you can you can you can't take at some point you can't take off any more clothes to cool off if it's cold you can always put more stuff on let's talk about the cold then you know in my mind cold is especially extreme cold is the one that takes the most work on your on your end to be prepared for it. it you have to have the right clothing you have to have your system down to stay warm you have to have a way of keeping your hands able to tie knots. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that goes into keeping comfortable, especially if you know that sure. you're going to sweat getting in. Oh yeah. Like, you know, yeah. yeah. Like we said, yeah. we walk in a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Well, kind of like hunting, right? The way, I mean, you guys have to walk in a lot yep. of times and yeah. And that's, it seems easier to do hunting than fishing cause you're in the water, you know? And so you're not like in hunting often I strap my coat to my backpack or, you know, I, I have stuffed in my backpack, like my top three layers, mm. but in fishing, I'm rarely carrying a pack big enough to to hold those types of layers easily or comfortably. Right. And then, yeah, I feel like that's a little bit less intuitive. I feel like with fishing too, there are periods of, you know, kind of high activity going to the next spot. 
or maybe just wading some some heavy mm-hmm. water. And then there, especially in the winter, there are period long periods for me of low activity where I'll fish longer, deeper, flat, or even a pool. And I'm either nymphing it or rolling streamers through it pretty slow. And I will be in that water for sometimes an hour. And then I go, whew, I'm getting cold. No, yeah. You know? oh, yeah. So you have, yeah, you're trying to satisfy things at all ends. Yeah. So do you guys think that the, the solution to dynamic fishing like that, where you're going to be sweating some and then standing still for a long period of time is, is wool? I, I mm-hmm. think we can all agree it's not right. cotton. Like you don't want cotton as your right. base layer. Yeah. Cotton is rotten. Cotton is rotten. Cotton yeah. is rotten. For me, it's 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 all about you know being able to unzip things and uh, and take hats off and take gloves off and on and off and especially unzipping. That can usually regulate body heat that way. Mm. I think Good Josh point. and I talk a lot about this just because we do hunt and in the hunting realm and and industry. I think I think there's been thought put into fabrics for longer mm. historically sure. um, when it comes to their functionality and I'm a I'm a huge wool fan because of its breathability yeah. and because of its persistence of insulation even when wet right. and so on the water that's a huge huge that's a uh, honestly not exaggerating that can be a life-saving sure. deal at times you know when you have base layers that are wool even if wet those things will continue to to insulate your sure. body and and provide warmth so and a lot of the times those things yeah. are now moisture wicking as well exactly. so they'll, they'll sure. take that moisture from yep. your your spine that's dripping down and and yep. push it out to external they're layers. also comfortable now yep. i mean when i was a kid wool right. was itchy yeah. against your skin and now it doesn't have to be yeah i think there's been a lot of the advancements in like the prima loft stuff mm. that is super warm and super yeah. light mm. um i know orvis and sims both have like good jackets that have that right. lining in it and I can fish like a long sleeves t-shirt and one of those mm. not so bulky jackets down to like almost like 30 yeah. degrees, 25 degrees and still be warm. And I don't feel like I'm weighted down where like, I remember as a kid, like I had, you know, a sweater or a t-shirt and a big jacket on. And I like you're saying the cotton is rotten, you know, walking around and, you know, walking a hundred yards and then just sweating and being soaked and then 10 minutes later being frozen. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's also, it takes more thought as far as understanding what the materials yeah. do yeah. and how nice. they provide you warmth. Would you guys acknowledge that the hands are the biggest challenge from a yeah. fishing standpoint in those ultra cold conditions? Yeah. I'll mention, I wrote a full series about, I'm still writing a full series about fishing in the winter. And there are, there are a lot yeah. of tactics articles there. But the whole thing starts with how to stay warm. And that took two articles to cover it. First, it was hands and toes, and it was it. then it was everything else. Uh, it really is. It's fingers and toes are first. When I was at Penn State, I led backpacking trips for a couple of years. Yeah. And um, we used to teach the students, one, how to, to dress for the day, but also how to pack ahead of time ready for the trip. We used an acronym, uh, WISE, W-I-S-E, and the W stood for wicking, and that was your base layer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the, the I stood for insulation, so you'd insulate yourself over your base layer. Yeah. The S stood for streamline, which meant basically your containment for those insulating and wicking layers. And then your E was your extremities, your hands, your toes, um, you know, your head and your hat. Um, and that's something I still think about today. Like the night before I go out uh, 
fishing yeah. on a really cold morning, I lay it all out on the ground, like like a little person. You know, I lay down my tights, I lay down my socks, I lay down my uh, my first wicking layer, my second yeah. wicking layer, then all my insulative layers, yep. and then I'll tie it all together with a with a coat and a, a rain jacket over the top that blocks the wind, keeps me streamlined, mm. and then I pile on those hats and, and gloves. So that's a good point. Do you guys all have? I guess I would call it like a go bag mm. or do you have like a duffel bag or a book bag that you keep in your car or keep ready when you go fishing so that, you know, Hey, I'm going fishing tonight after work. Let me just grab the bag and go. Or do you just kind of wing it? I'm not much of a wing it guy for, for anything when it comes to fishing. Right. And uh, <laughs> Joey's been yeah. fishing with me a lot. Again, my oldest son. And I was just yesterday encouraging him, Hey Joe, especially now that it's getting colder, you need to have a bag like you're talking about, Bill. And every, I mean, he sees everybody in my family knows that here, there's my gray duffel bag. You know, it, it it's heavy because it has all kinds of, you guys have seen it. Even in the summertime, I just kind of keep everything in there. And it has every clothing option that I'm going to need. It has hand warmers. It, I have flashlights and things like that. And then I also have a box with a whole bunch of fishing gear in it that I bring all the time. But yeah, that bag for me is key because again, none of us get the kind of time on the water that we really want. So in the winter, it takes effort to get out there. And if, if, if part of that effort is looking for what clothes you want to wear, you know, then it's, it becomes too much effort. I keep everything in a bag. I like having the stuff in the car all the time. So, you know, Hey, if I happen to fall in, I have something to run back to the car and change, especially in the cold. It makes a big difference. It's not just about what you have on. It's about, you have to be prepared for you might fall in. And you know, if you fall in the summer, who cares? But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've done that in the winter and then I didn't have that kind of setup and I was a long way from my car. So I lit a fire (laughs) and I started drying out my clothes. And so I was sitting there shirtless in the snow (laughs) by a fire. Roll around in the snow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Drying out my clothes because I went. I went head under mm, water. I've done that. Yeah. I just ran back. Yeah. To the, I pretty much so, jogged back to the car. I was about a half mile back. I w- this was in the first like 30 minutes of fishing and I had one day mm-hmm. of fishing. So, so Dr. Science, what's the yeah. best yeah. way to do here? Do you run back to the car? That's do you right. build a fire? Let's talk about, well, yeah, let's talk about physiologic effects of temperature for just a second. Appropriation? Because, yeah, no. Did I say that? No, I probably said that wrong. <laughs> um, you did. You did. So, our body is intelligently designed, right? So as we cool and as we get cold, our peripheries or our like extremities begin to go through a process of vasoconstriction. That means the blood vessels constrict and get more narrow. That's to divert the blood flow towards our core, which is the only part of our body remaining warm, right? So that worsens the problem that we're experiencing when fishing of having cold hands. As you begin to cool and stand in one place, you get exponentially colder in your extremities because your body is shunting that blood back to the heart and circulating it through a more narrow part of your body. So there is an element to which you cannot warm up your extremities unless you warm up your core temperature. And so the ultimate, and you all probably have known this and experienced this when you're on the water, you will do your best. You have your hands and hand warmers in your pockets. You're trying to warm your hands up. They're still cold that nothing's really working. And then you walk a half mile or a mile to the next spot you're going to yeah. fish and you're toasty and your hands don't have gloves. And you're just like, you know, this is amazing. You know, my fans feel yeah. great. So there's an extent to which you have to move and you have to generate some core temperature in order to fuel the warmth to the extremities. There are some, and, and that's what, this is a, touches on a dangerous point of hypothermia 
where Josh, I'm glad you didn't experience this, but as you cool to an extent and you experience exposure to an extent, the nerves on the surface of your extremities and of your skin actually begin to burn and feel like warm Mm. or kind of Mm. hot. And so there's a phenomenon where people, as they cool to a particular point, feel hot and they will begin to strip clothing off. (laughs) Don't do that. And then further, yeah, don't do Mm. that. Um, So exposure can be really dangerous, obviously, in that sense. But some of the tricks to use in your favor, if you're trying to warm up your extremities, and Dom, you do this, um, is using hand warmers strategically, kind of, you know. And so if you kind of use a loose rubber band, I would kind of foot stomp loose because you don't want to restrict blood flow at all. But if you use a hand warmer at your wrist versus kind of in the palm of the hand or, or putting it in your pockets, you're actually tricking the body a little bit into vasodilating the blood vessels in your hands and sending more blood into your hands rather than less. And it actually will keep the hands warmer for longer. Um, and so targeted use of hand warmers like that can be really useful and helpful Same thing goes with the foot to an extent, but the foot's a little tricky Mm. because getting access to like the central blood flow to the foot's a little bit less intuitive. You could put a hand warmer like in the back of your uh, knee, like the popliteal fossa, um, which is behind the knee. And so that's an area you could potentially target, but that'd be, I haven't tried it. I I mean, maybe we should all try it this winter. I have horrible problems with my feet. I can fish 15, 20 degrees without any gloves on. Hmm. but at like 30 degrees my hands or my feet start to have problems and so give it a try this way in the winter that's why a lot of times i'll fish faster yeah because Mm -hmm. i need to keep moving because my feet just start to have circulation problems or something's going on my solution for the winter is did it for me i I wear a size 10 boot regularly and now i have a size 11 boot i can literally get three thick pair of wool socks of course in my stocking foot waders and then um yeah, I can fit all that, and they're not jammed. the The toes aren't mm-hmm. tight. Do you, do you ever try getting bigger boots? So I've tried bigger yeah. boots with double wool yeah. socks and and foot <laughs> yeah. warmers, and I still have problems. My mm-hmm. my resolution to it is just catch them faster and move faster. What uh, what you were saying, Trevor, about the hand warmers is it's been a good sure. trick for a lot of people when I show them this, and I wrote an mm-hmm. article about it. Yeah, I wear fingerless wool gloves. I think a lot of us wear similar if not the same. I use Fox River fingerless wool gloves. They're cheap. You can wash them. They're, of course, warm still when wet. Um, but I want my finger... I have to have my fingers out. I, I do so much re-rigging and changing because that's how I enjoy fishing that, you know, having my fingers out is just a priority. And I've been able to do it even down into single digits, especially, though, by putting the, like you said, Trevor, the hand warmer, I'll put it on the inside of my wrist and under the cuff of that uh, wool glove. Now, I know that on the package it says, don't put this next to your skin. Fair enough. Nah. But I do. I put it right <laughs> next to my skin, and then the wool is over, wool glove is over top of it. And yeah, sometimes I'll even tighten, snug that up with a, sometimes a rubber band, but really a, a wristband. I use wristbands a lot in the winter. And that kind of just pushes everything in there, kind of tightens it up. I can literally feel the warmth go into my hand, but especially then up my arm. And I'll kind of push it in when I get cold. Of course, I use... You're talking like a sweatband. Yeah, right? I mean to say sweatband or wristband, yeah. Which is great because I've, I think the... Uh, I mentioned earlier, I think the detriment to using some sort of device like that would be just a restriction in blood flow that kind of counteracts some of the benefits that you're getting out of the whole system to begin with, right? So in addition to the wrist, I like to put one in my breast pocket too. Oh, yeah. Like right over my heart. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like it Man, warms up my core works. a lot sure. and sends that warm blood to all those extremities and really heats that uh, central nervous system up. Mm-hmm. Sometimes like annoyingly warm, isn't it right? Yeah. I mean, I love it in the, the tree stand too. I like, bet. And when you're hunting, yeah. you can just feel it pushing against your, I put it against guys, the skin too you, sometimes. Man, that feels You guys so ever good. do one on the back of your neck? Oh, uh, that'd no. be good, right? Mm-hmm. Man. How do you hold that in place, Josh? i I mean, I just have it. Like, usually, there you go. Well, no, no. <laughs> usually, there's enough. Usually, there's enough layers of clothing there. I just set it there. It'll stay in place. It'll, yeah, it'll stay. It'll stay, but because my my collar is too tight for it to go down inside, it just sits there. My dad has talked for years. We go to the Steelers games and we sit there, and it's cold, you know, especially when they get into playoffs. Anyway, my dad has talked for years about having a, a base layer with pockets sewn in where you could put those hand warmers. And now what he does do quite a bit is take one of those big hand warm. They're not hand. They call them body warmers. That's what they market them as body warmers. Mm -hmm. He puts it on his lower back, you know, under his shirts, right outside of his base layer at his lower back. And he, he loves that. You could sew pockets (laughs) into a shirt and just have them like at the top, the base of your neck. That's pretty good. I never thought of that one. Your shoulder blades, maybe. So yeah, my dad did that. He showed that to me and it really works. So another thing about the, the cold, especially extreme cold is the ice. And how difficult it can be once your guides start to freeze up dealing with that. What do you guys do to fix it? Even you can even get like a, a straw around your, your mono sometimes. <laughs> right. So you ever see that? Yeah, yeah. So really another advantage to fish in the mono rig is that it doesn't ice up nearly as much as a fly line. It's a hard line that sort of kicks out the ice as it goes through the guides. It's also not as thick as the fly line, so it doesn't carry as much water. It ends up to be ice. That's a big deal for me. The other thing for me is uh Stanley's ice off paste. I know. Yeah. You, I mean, I've tried it all. I you tried have to reapply. Pa- you do. Yeah. It lasts about 20, 30 yeah. minutes. That's when it gets real yeah. bad. And I'll try that on the guides usually. It One helps. way I counteract this problem is just by fishing a consistent distance away from me. So right. rather than just pulling line in and out, yeah. I'll just fish, you know, 15 feet or 20 feet. That's the key. You do the 10 car thing, right? I mean, you're, yeah, one, right. you're fixed yeah. length of line. So you're not creating yep. ice in the guides right on. You're moving your arm instead of stripping the line. Mm-hmm. You're keeping, exactly. you're basically preventing the, the line from going through the guides. Yeah. Hey, you guys think snow is a problem? Biggest thing for snow for me is the walk in. Um, when you're trudging through tracks that haven't been mm. uh, walked through yet, and it's two and a half feet of snow, oh, I sweat mm. to death trying to get to the creek. Yeah, that's true. And that's that's the worst yeah. thing about it to me. But if you do walk through it, that water is all yours, right? Nobody yeah, else right is going to do it. That's true. And I always love the snow because you can see who's in there or who hasn't yeah. been in there for a week. Yes. You know, yeah. I got a, got a huge snowstorm a week ago and still there's no tracks. I'll go get it. You know, visibility can be a little tricky sometimes depending on the yeah. heaviness of the snow. I know we've fished them all days all together here that they're, I mean, it's just tough to see yeah. 10 feet in front of you. You know, I don't think there's anything here. You're there's right. a limitation to yeah, that. Nobody yeah. can do anything about that. Right. Right. There's something that I just, the wet snow, and it just covering everything with like a nice new blanket is probably my most favorite inclement weather to fish or just probably my most favorite time to fish is just that you know fresh new blanket of snow it's stuck to the trees just everything looks nice it's dead quiet um yes it yeah it has that dampening of the woods yes and i'm with you Uh, some of my best memories are being out there with my dog Mm-hmm. And just there's again, you know that there's nobody else out there. It's like a record of who has been there and <laughs> what to expect. Oh, I love it. So speaking of like you know snow, what do you guys think about rain? Do you guys like the rain? Hate the rain? 
I think the hardest condition to fish might be 34 degrees or 33 degrees and rain. I'd much rather it be 25 degrees and snow. I can, mm-hmm. you know, I can deal with that better. I do feel like this rain, fishing in the rain often is just willpower. Now I'm not talking about drizzle. We're talking about rain. You know, now it it's raining. My first thing is always, I want to get dressed and be dry mm-hmm. to start the day. Yes. Like I don't want to get dressed as it rains on me and like my underlayers are wet. If I know that there's not a good place to change and if it's blowing and it's rainy, I'll stop at a gas station and I'll get dressed under mm-hmm. a big canopy yeah. and ensure that I get dressed and I'm dry and then I'll continue the drive to the river. Yeah, you got to start dry and you have to be careful to stay dry. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it's funny. We all buy these great raincoats, you know. Sometimes we spend a bunch of money on them. But so few people really use those raincoats, and we see it. Uh, most people go home when the rain really starts, you know. Good raincoats, um, even just a hiking raincoat. I used a Gander Mountain green, ugly hiking raincoat for, oh, I'm going to say eight or ten years. And even that had a way, you know, to adjust the hood and, and really keep the rain out and deal with things. It had cuffs that I could really cinch down. So I'm going to make sure I start dry and try to stay dry. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll adjust that hood to keep the rain out. This one might be a little strange, but I'm back to those wristbands or those uh, sweatbands. Um, I'll wear those under my cuff and up on my forearm because no matter how, no matter how great the raincoat is, there's always, well, when you're casting, there's always some water that starts to leak up Dripping to your up. forearm. Yeah. yeah, and get it'll get all the way to your, your elbow and then even beyond. So I use, when I know it's going to be really rainy, I take these wristbands with me, and again, I put them on my forearm, so they will catch a lot of that water. It's just kind of trickling in. And then even if it's a long day, I'll change that if it gets waterlogged, and I'll just throw it in the back of my vest, and now I have a dry one. Mm. And I should mention, too, on rainy rainy days, I have dry things in food storage bags, whatever, gallon Ziploc bags in the back of my vest. That's It's a way to stay out there, you know? Something else you need to consider when selecting a raincoat is ventilation. Um, yeah. when we're wearing a raincoat, it doesn't necessarily mean it's cold out. It could be springtime, 70 degrees, but it's pounding rain. Oftentimes now mm. raincoats are made with, um, like armpit zippers underneath yeah. that you can yeah. open up and then let a lot of the steam and a lot of the, the trapped heat inside your body escape. And that's another mm-hmm. game changer. Definitely. And a- another thing to add to that would be just making sure you have that wicking base layer on under the raincoat. It's amazing how much difference that makes because, while a lot of our raincoats are Gore-Tex, if you don't have a wicking layer underneath that, you can really build up some condensation and sweat underneath that. Yeah, some of the most uncomfortable days are when it's, I don't know, 65 or 70, and, it, and then it's raining, and you think, all right, I'm going to wear, wear the raincoat. Well, that's when it's key to have that ventilation, mm-hmm. like you're saying, and the wicking uh, layers. For me, the cutoff is, if it's 75 or, let's say, 80 degrees, I'm not going to wear a raincoat. I'm just going to accept that I'm going to get wet. Get wet. You know, and I'll fish Mine, anyway. Mine's like 65. Oh, wow, I'm, yeah. I'm fat kid. I'll stay warm. <laughs> I'll wear my, uh, but I do wear something, some sort of hood, just uh, like a moisture wicking shirt with a hood, but just a little bit of a hood to keep the rain okay. from getting on my sunglasses mm. or on my hat. I can fish in, let's say 65, 70 degrees and it can rain and I'll get a little bit wet, but you know, until I'm completely soaked, most days I'm fine. For me, if I wear a rain jacket at that temperature, I sweat more because I'm moving around, and I end up more wet from the rain jacket than I do mm. from the rain. You guys wear nice. the rain jacket over top of your packs or underneath your packs, like a vest mm. or a chest pack? Or 
underneath for me. Under, yeah. Yeah. Under. I don't mind if my vest gets, gets wet. I mean, I hate sure. having to take everything out and dry everything that was in the vest when I get home. But I have to have but, access to all my I wish stuff. There was an so easier way to do ring. that. I wish, but yeah. I don't know what it is. Right. So I have two different systems. Okay. If it if I'm fishing and it's not going to rain, I'll, I'll I'll often wear a vest because it is more accessible to get to stuff. If I know it's going to rain, I will then, for the most part, use a waterproof pack to put my stuff in, so that. All my stuff isn't soaked at the end of the day, meaning my fly boxes, yeah. everything just isn't drenched. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it rains in the morning, so I use that pack in the morning, mm-hmm. and then I'll rotate and move it into the vest in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Most yeah. important thing is to keep your rain jacket over top of your waders, though. <laughs> can't tell <laughs> yeah, you how many anglers I see yeah, have their sure. rain jacket tucked inside their waders. Making saw, a funnel. I've seen that a couple what times. What are we doing like, out no, there? No, that's not how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have one more element that we fight that we really want to talk about. I think the sun. The sun for me is, it's my least favorite. I hate the sun. I think brown trout, well, brown trout really especially hate the sun. And I think it's the most underrated element out there. It changes everything. I, I, I kind of see it every day we're out there. If you, if you can keep the sun behind the trout, that really helps. Uh, sometimes when the sun goes behind the clouds, bang, the action turns on. We see it a lot. There are ways you can deal with it, ways to adjust. You can look for angles. Sections of river that don't have as much sun. Early season and late season can be tough. With a lot of our rivers, you can find shade. And, but yeah, it's, it's, it's more work for sure. Yeah, they go sure. around what, bends. What really yeah. sucks is when you have a sunny day mm-hmm. and it's freezing cold or something like that. Well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, so early and late season when you don't have leaves on the trees and now all of a sudden the sun is high enough in the sky, let's say like March or even right now, like mid-November. Uh, the sun is still high enough in the sky midday where, boy, it's right on the water and there are no leaves. There, there is no shade. And yeah, if you can't get around a bend and keep it out of the trout's eyes, you got to think about it. You, you, when you're driving, you know, east in the morning, you don't like looking right into the sun and the trout don't like looking upstream or facing upstream and looking right into the sun. It's tough for them. I do think the winter is the mo- is the time I hate it the most, for sure. Any other time of year, I don't see it as quite a big as big of a factor because I feel like it's it's one of the mm. easier ones to get around. As you mentioned, like whether it's the section of the stream or is it whether you're just going to fish one bank mm-hmm. because of the right. sun and and it almost makes that particular area better fishing, right? Because if you find the shade when it's sunny, you oftentimes can find feeding fish, but. Um, but in the wintertime, I, I, I do agree that is super tough because you're also often combining that with like lower clear water and then bright overhead sun or bright sun. And it's just, that's a tough combination. I agree. I think, uh, what I deal with the most, and I've been talking about this every day with clients, you get that glare on the water. I call it black water. You get that high, those highlights that polarized lenses really, they can't, they can't defeat it. That's for sure. They can help a little bit. We're talking about those angles that you just can't see into. I will position myself then just so I can see if, if the sun angle, uh, and the sun could be behind the clouds mm. and it still creates this, this blackwater effect a lot of times. There are certain angles you can see into the water and there's certain angles you can't. And you're looking right into the highlights or this blackwater effect. It often is limiting. Today, for example, I mean, the sun was kind of to our left and it was in and out of the clouds. But all day, if we looked left, we could not see. I don't care how good the glasses are. It just doesn't matter. You could not see into the water. 
you can see the surface, but it's all highlights and you're looking right into highlights. So then you can't really read, uh, read the water very well and necessarily fish it very well. So we kept waiting over, I'd say, let's reset to the left. So we'd go over to the left, left, left bank, and then we'd fish to the right. And when you're looking into the right, heck, you could see the river bottom, one, two, three feet of water. You could see it all day long. Even as that sun got a little higher in the sky, you could still see to the right, but you could not see to the left. So it's limiting. We could still fish that water, but it kind of forced us to move around a lot more. Speaking about moving around, a lot of times, if I know it's going to be a sunny day, I may hit a big river for the first few hours of the day when the sun comes up and really starts beating down on the river. Maybe I'll bail on the big river and go fish some tributaries because the smaller streams often have more canopy. Even though might not be as many leaves and stuff in the winter you have that more canopy you have the more like a bendier and you might have uh some less pressured fish that are you know middle of the day they may feed and that stream's going to fish a little better and then maybe hit that for a little bit and then go back to the main river once the once the sun goes over the other side of the mountain yeah right on and so it affects us it affects the angles that we can see in and it affects even just our comfort level for being able to you know, fish right into the sun. That's difficult. But yeah, it affects the fishing too. I think all of these elements that we've talked about, um, we acknowledge they also affect the fishing, the fish themselves. You know, if the water is too warm, then it affects the fish. If the water is too cold, then it affects the fish. What we've mostly talked about here is, you know, how, how it affects us and how we can deal with these elements or fight against them. All right, good stuff. Thanks guys for another great discussion. So pushing through those tough times, dealing with difficult conditions, puts you one step ahead of most anglers. I mean, you all see it. The rivers and the parking lots are empty when the wind is howling, the snow is blowing, or it's pouring rain. Sure, we'd all like to fish the sweetheart days. But the more you learn to fight the elements and win, to have success on the water, the more you long for those tough conditions. Truthfully. Uh, Give me rain over sun. Yes, seriously. I'll take January over July, and I'm just as happy to fish in a snow squall as I am to fish 70 degrees in May. That's the truth. And it's not just about meeting the challenges. It's not just about having fewer anglers on the water. It's a certain satisfaction of being a complete angler, knowing that you're ready for anything. Because you know you can catch trout in the rain, in the snow, in the cold, or in direct hard sun knowing that you have a system and a method of approach. Uh, Then instead of shying away from tough conditions, you welcome every new day, no matter the weather, as a chance to go fishing. So thanks to everyone out there for listening and for supporting this Trout Bitten podcast. Austin, will you read us out? So remember, TroutBitten.com is a free resource for all anglers. So dig in and check it out. Navigate through the menus and find what you like. Share it, leave a comment. Use a search page if you're looking for something specific. Navigate by way of the categories and the tags, too. Thank you for listening. Please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment, because that really helps. Until next time, friends, fish hard, enjoy the day, and find your life on the water.